Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and we are midway through our Summer Old Book Club Persuasion with Jane Austen. And this week, we're doing chapters one through three of volume two. We made it all the way to volume two. So yay. (laughs) Today, I have a great friend with me, Dr. Jessica Hines, who is a fellow medievalist. Hooray for medievalists. Yay. Yay. (laughs) And um, I'm so glad you're here with us, Jessica. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. And it feels very um, significant to be rolling in volume two. Yes. Yeah. We meet some some important people in this section of chapters. So we have some fun things. Um, I'm going to properly introduce you now. Dr. Jessica Hines is an assistant professor of English at Birmingham Southern College, where she teaches classes on medieval literature, culture, and gender. Jessica and I met at Duke, where we were both medievalists, and we shared the same advisors and had extremely similar committees. (laughs) Um, She received her doctorate there in 2017 and wrote an amazing dissertation on pity, which is super interesting. Um, She... Uh, we actually bonded over a love of tea and baked goods, particularly scones in the early days. We ate a lot of scones together and um, eventually we became working buddies and members of the same writing group, which Jessica Ward was also in, who was on here a few weeks ago. Jessica has a keen creative mind and wit She can sniff out even the most meandering argument from miles away. She writes on a fascinating array of topics, including compassion, suffering, gender and sexuality, and the politics of language. And bonus for us today, she's even taught persuasion several times in her courses. So maybe she'll have some like student insight that she can share with us. I would be very curious. Yeah, Jessica is also a cat mom to cats with really wonderful names, Budika and Cleo. So welcome, Dr. Jessica Hines to Old Books with Grace. Yay. Well, it's so great to be here having listened to the podcast from its inception. So it's Yay. very exciting. And I have to tell yeah. you guys that Jessica has read a ton of my work and she has been super influential in so much of my writing. So I'm extra glad she's here today. Uh, Well, this is, yeah, it feels like a big honor. And uh, (laughs) the really exciting thing about doing this with non-students is I am 100% confident you have read the book (laughs) and probably more carefully than I have at this point. (laughs) I have read it a lot. I will not lie. Um, All right. So every time I have a guest on, I have three questions for you. Number one. Who or what is your favorite author or book from more than 50 years ago? And I know that you can hit this question out of the ballpark being a medievalist. <laughs> it's true. And I do feel like professionally obligated. I don't think it's my favorite work from 50 years ago, but I feel really strongly about evangelizing the book of Marjorie Kemp. Yes. So like <laughs> contemporary of Julian um, and just delightfully wacky while at the same time being like so sharp which is like a weird combination of things wacky and sharp Um, rare one might say 
very rare. Um, very rare, but I, I do love it so much. And then um, I'll also put in a plug for one of my favorites, which is like The Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. Oh, good one. Yes. Yeah. Real. I mean, what's not to like fairy tale imagery, Eucharistic notes, goblins. I, I mean, I like it's just kind of everything. So win on every level. <laughs> yeah. I love Christina Rossetti and I always forget that how wonderful she is. And that reminds me, I should go back and read her, read more of her. Okay. Number two, Mm -hmm. which literary character do you most identify with and why? (laughs) Um, So I, I think I had told you um, definitely sort of a long standing identification with Eleanor Dashwood. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think she's kind of like the sort of patron saint of like people who are maybe like living a little too much in their head. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Um, So I was really glad to kind of have her like growing up with and being able to sort of like, uh, especially um, so I came at her from obviously Emma Thompson's like really beautiful like Mm -hmm. adaptation. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just Emma really- Thompson is the perfect Eleanor Dashwood. Just so perfect. good. Yes. And I, yeah. I really love that moment where you can see she's so stoic throughout the whole thing. And then she cries during the proposal. I'm like, Oh, this feels familiar. It's just very, that's <laughs> yeah. That's really so beautiful. So smart. It's great. Yeah. Excellent. And number three, when was the first time you read a Jane Austen novel and what did you think? Um, I definitely know the first thing I watched was Sense and Sensibility. Um, Ooh, yeah, which I think is why I read. Um, but I, I don't think Sense and Sensibility was the first one I read. I think it was Pride and Prejudice. Um, and I based that partly on the fact that like, I don't think I have the original book. I think I got all of the other ones at once. So I think I must've gotten Pride and Prejudice from the library. Mm. Um, and I, I was like kind of disappointed because it wasn't as romantic as I wanted it to be. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a lot of people have that reaction though, because Austin is set up as this like romantic romance writer. And in reality, she really is not like obviously that's a huge part of her stories but she's not very interested in the actual romance factor of things no and I would (laughs) say I probably read it a little too young for the like wit and like social (laughs) commentary so I was like mostly there for like the getting together bits so in some ways it's like kind of astonishing that I like held on but I was persistent I was committed to like really enjoying my Jane Austen Emma, I mean, uh, Emma Thompson's Eleanor led the way. You're like, no, it has to be good if this is like one of the results of it. I, I think that's right. Like yeah. pretty much. I certainly watched a lot of um, Jane Austen movies and then reread them as I like got older. And then yeah, it is one of those things where if you read them too early and you just don't understand the humor, it's it's hard to get why it's amazing yeah I I think that's right um and that's um, I guess if we're thinking about teaching so I um teach persuasion in um my British literature class and it's a big survey and so we read it right after we do Jonathan Swift oh like a funny pairing that actually (laughs) works so perfectly because like 
I get a mix of some students are so jazzed. They're like, I've been waiting for Jane Austen the entire semester. Um, but then there's a bunch of them who are like, eh, Jane Austen, I, I don't like her. I don't want to read her, but like coming at her as like a kind of, um, a satirical writer yes. and offering a political commentary. That's I such a good pairing. It works really well. It means I think a lot of students who wouldn't take her seriously, at least they have to pretend to take her seriously. <laughs> um, I'm like, hey, there's no like Irish babies being eaten. But I think <laughs> that's something really serious to say about like, I don't know, gender or class and that kind of fun stuff. Yes. And um, for those of you who didn't have the pleasure of reading Jonathan Swift's Modest Proposal <laughs> in your, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember if I read it in high school or college. I, I definitely read it in college, but I might have read it earlier. But anyways, yeah. if you have not had that pleasure, you need to do so immediately. It yeah. is, in fact, as Jessica says, about babies being eaten. And it is satire, so don't worry too much. But it is quite the quite the piece of literature. So yeah, no, it's good to explain. I'm not just randomly talking about eating Irish babies. <laughs> and Swift was Irish himself, right? Yes, I, yes. Yeah. So he was uh, he was he was going pretty hard at the English for that one. Um, so, anyways you should uh, check it out if you haven't. So, and I love the pairing of Swift with Austin. That's amazing. And actually I read um, Persuasion in my Brit Lit survey as an undergraduate. So it must be, it's a good, a good length for a survey course, I think too. <laughs> oh, I love that because um, by this point in the semester, my students, I know them well enough that I'm like, okay, do you know why I picked persuasion? And they're like trying to come up with like some real answers. I'm like, it's just my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> it's I mean, so that's good. Literally the only reason we're doing it. But. Oh, it's so good. And I think it has the bonus that like a ton of people have read Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. And so it's, in my opinion, those two are her best works. Mm -hmm. And even though I love Sense and Sensibility too, don't get me wrong. But right. yeah. I feel like if you're going to read Jane Austen, you should read Pride and Prejudice or Persuasion. But yeah. most people have read Pride and Prejudice. So Persuasion's the perfect answer. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. Definitely. Yeah. Speaking of, should we get down to it? Let's do it. Chapters one through three, volume two. Yay, a new era. A new era begins. A new hope. <laughs> For all you Star Wars fans, there might not be that many listening to this podcast. Or maybe there's a lot. I don't know. I mean, we both like Star Wars. We so. do. And nerdery, you know, nerds love nerds. So yeah. maybe, uh, maybe there's some Star Wars fans. I hope so. So... And there is new hope. There's a lot of new hope in this section, but it's just barely beginning. Yes. Yeah. I, but it is like kind of amazing. I love that um, you and Chelsea were talking about it last time, but like the sort of glow up we get from Anne, like yes. her sort of like second when she's 27, but she's still cute, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I know. It's really painful. Imagine teaching a group of 19-year-olds. <laughs> Like, are they so mad about it? No, that, no, they are like confused. And actually they're a little like, oh, you know, 19, we're still cute. They're like, <laughs> they're the Louisa Musgroves. 
I I only teach Louisa Musgroves. <laughs> time to become an Aunt Elliot. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you, well, I, I feel like you don't find an Aunt Elliot at 19, maybe. No, I think it's hard. I think it is genuinely hard. Yeah. But they are completely befuddled by that and feel a little awkward because they don't know how old I am, but they're like, she's probably older than 27. <laughs> So anyway, we're like, be careful what you say about the yeah, elderly. <laughs> exactly. We might offend her. I'm like, oh God, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cute though. Very sweet. I like it. Mm. Um, but yeah. So we are back at um, Upper Cross after the whole Lyme incident. If you mm. are trying to mentally situate yourself and, uh, she is extremely useful there, doing her favorite thing as Anne, being useful, and uh, <laughs> getting these accounts from Lyme and uh, Mary is lingering in the background unpleasantly. Poor Mary, uh, who insisted on staying and nursing, but now there's really nothing for her to do. There's nothing for her to do, as is repeated over and over. No, but she didn't have too bad of a time. <laughs> no. I, I love the way they put it, what, more pleasant than not? At some point. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah, so, and um, Anne sends off the old nursery maid of the family to help Louisa. And now she is going back to Lady Russell's, and that is where we are. Yeah. Now it's, it feels like a really funny transition. We're like leaving a woman with a pretty serious concussion <laughs> accident. And we're like, okay, everyone's back home now. I guess we'll all go to Bath and wait on <laughs> you. I mean, it, it does feel like, I don't know, it's just so much like medical drama for yes. a James novel and so it's sort of like you're in this awkward like what happens next now that the like other part of the love triangle is like unconscious yes <laughs> it gets very awkward and um I actually want to put a put a hold on that because um I think we should talk about it a lot more when she gets to bath because I think the comparison between the like dramatic medical scenes versus what we get when we get to yeah. bath is hilarious and kind of sad but um we'll put a pin in that and return to it all right um, I want to think about upper cross for a minute she has this really Austin writes this really interesting line about like pain and preciousness mm. um where she's <laughs> She's on a dark November's day with a thick rain blotting out the objects from the windows, but she's not really happy to leave. Um, she's glad to see Lady Russell, but there's this uh, line, this, these, this set of lines where it goes, scenes had passed in Uppercross, which made it precious. It stood the record of many sensations of pain, once severe, but now softened. And of some instances of relenting feeling, some breathings of friendship and reconciliation, which could never be looked for again and which could never cease to be dear. She left it all behind her, all but the recollection that some things had been. Yeah. And this is a very meditative 
leave taking and and kind of like you said like an interesting kind of weird switch from like the hustle bustle drama of like medical musgroves going nuts blah 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 and then we have these moments what do you when you read that what does that make you think yeah I'm glad you drew attention to this because I there are lines that I had like kind of noted but not really thought about much until you said something but as you were speaking, what it reminds me of is that part early in the novel where she's like thinking about eventually, right? Captain Wentworth will be here. Yes. And like picturing him on the grounds. And so there's something really interesting here where she actually, it's not just obviously Captain Wentworth, but she's thinking about the entire time at Upper Cross where she's had this company, where she's gotten her like second bloom. Yes. And so she's got these memories actually populating it. And for it, Sorry, my cats decided to come. To uh, <laughs> Welcome, cats. These actual memories to come to come in, and they're like that. They're not upsetting. That they're not of her being ignored. Feels I don't know. Uh, that feels like kind of validating. It is it is meditative, but it yeah. It's like she's got this pain that's been softened. This sort of some breathings of friendship and reconciliation. Yeah. What what caught you thinking about it? No, I mean I I I think you're right. Like, I think it is about that idea of this is a place and hasn't been ignored, and even though so much of it brought pain to her, mm-hmm. um, that the significance of her not being ignored and that bringing on this sort of second life of Anne is. I think part of this idea of, of Anne remembering and Anne's such a, she's such a memory oriented person. Mm-hmm. So we see this, the significance of upper cross to her where it's not just like a noisy place with a ton of kids where people were nice to her. It's, um, it has, its significance has become really deep to her. And yeah. I still, I don't know. I've been thinking about that. And it's in some ways then it is like the opposite of Bath, which Mm -hmm. is uh, (laughs) also noisy (laughs) as we will see, but which um, feels really shallow and not like this memory laden place. Yeah. No, I think that's really interesting. There is something kind of fascinating that like Anne's particular brand of um, a thoughtfulness of like careful consideration um, of prudence. Um, <laughs> sorry, which is a very medieval term. Yes. Um, yeah. But a prudence is like laden so much with her, her spending time in memories and like analyzing. Yes. Oh, wait, can we have a little Thomas Aquinas moment here? Do you want to tell us about prudence and like its role? Yeah. I mean, I think what's really interesting, right, is like prudence is a really important medieval virtue um like god has perfect prudence because god can see is is omniscient is um all present in time and is able to see and make judgments based on having that access whereas like human prudence is able to take in multiple perspectives and sort of like use them to interpret and to think and make your choices carefully and so that uh, it's really importantly tied to, I've actually got the craft of memory right here. Do you? <laughs> um, which Medievalist is, uh, delight. Yeah, Mary Carruthers. Oh no, sorry. It's the craft of thought. Um, ah, here's the book of memory. 
Um, but, uh, yeah. So there's something really important about like being able to spend time in memory. Um, that's really significant for the development of prudence for like being a really prudent person. So it's like kind of fascinating to see. And, um, yes. Yeah, really, that does feel like a really significant character detail for her. Yes, and it's hard for us to recognize that today because we often think of prudence as uh, a pretty negative virtue. (laughs) Um, Somebody who's prudent is like like a dour, tight-lipped, like, you know, maybe a, like, Karenish woman worried about coupons. I don't know. Like there's a very negative connotation with prudence and that it's this massive virtue that the most important intellectual virtue for Aquinas, um, the virtue that helps you to make decisions, uh, especially moral decisions, not like money saving decisions, but like the whole package. Um, and that is the sense of Anne Elliot that we get to that Anne is an exemplar of prudence as the the whole package of prudence and as being um, so influenced by memories and uh, makes decisions with that fullness of time kind of in her mind. And she's a character that time has laid really heavily on. Yeah, no, I really like that. And and then you can see why she made her choice at 19. She had fewer memories she had fewer experience yeah oh I like that I hadn't thought of that but you're so right and it's interesting because that quote that is in the that is on the back of my book that's the really famous one about um she had been forced into prudence in her youth she learned romance as she grew older the natural sequel of an unnatural beginning this is an interesting quote because it's using prudence in this semi-negative way that we're more used to but really I think Austin is also being a little tongue-in-cheek here where she's talking Mm -hmm. about actually Anne growing into the fullest form of prudence in like an old-fashioned way of thinking about it the medieval way the um Mm -hmm. older English way would have been uh romance would have been an important part in prudence because you were making decisions with your heart and your mind in in unity together um and I think that's where we see Anne growing is this combination yeah no I like that I think that's right um hey I never thought of that before so (laughs) coming to new insights (laughs) but yeah all this stuff about memory and and I think it goes oh it's everywhere but yeah Mm. yeah It feels like an important place to start volume two. Yes. Ooh, definitely. We begin volume two with leaving behind a place full of memories, going to a place with negative memories, but that fingers crossed will soon be filled with really new, exciting ones. So (laughs) yeah. Now we're back to Lady Russell. Lady Russell is hosting her. And awkwardly, uh, this is the first time that Anne has to share that Wentworth is around with somebody who knows her history. Oh, poor Anne. Poor Anne. Yeah. It's a fraught moment. It is a fraught moment. Um, and it, I don't know. I, don't, I would think like, at least she got to put it off for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and so she could like, I don't know. She could like drop hints like, okay, Lady Russell, don't worry. She, he he seems interested in Louisa. We don't have to rehash this. Please yes. don't say anything to me. Yes. <laughs> Captain Wentworth. Um, 
So yes, and and here we have um, Lady Russell feeling like her judgment has been confirmed. Um, yeah. Lady Russell had only to listen composedly and wish them happy. She's talking about the presumed forthcoming engagement of Wentworth and Louisa Musgrove. But internally, her heart reveled in angry pleasure, in pleased contempt, that the man who at 23 had seemed to understand somewhat of the value of an Anne Elliot should, eight years afterward, be charmed by a Louisa Musgrove. Yeah, ouch. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, and that feels like kind of right. Like maybe the like secret reveling, but it, it is a little like, yeah, Lady Russell, like get it together, Captain Wentworth. Not Louisa's lovely. And I think <laughs> for all the reasons that you and Chelsea unpacked last time, she, she's a little silly. Yeah, that's fine. She, we're all a little silly at white. Yes. Is she 19? Is she like 18, 17? Something like she's, I think she's 19, but yeah. I could be wrong. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like, really? Yes. grown wiser. Yes. Um, and that brings up the question of Lady Russell again, where um, here we should agree with her, though I don't know if, if we would describe ourselves as having angry pleasure or pleased contempt, but that um, Anne Elliot is certainly the better choice for Wentworth than Louisa Musgrove. But I'm still hung up, you guys. I'm still hung up over this question of what Jane Austen thinks that we should think about Lady Russell. What do you think? No, I think the way you framed that was like helpful because on the one hand, it's like, yeah, I think we are supposed to be a little judgmental of like Captain Wentworth. Yes. Like, oh, yes. But, but we can also understand it. He's been hurt, whatever. Like yes. we all do questionable things when confronted by our exes in public spaces. <laughs> um, but like the pleased contempt, it's like, oh, really? Is I that that feels not right too. Like there's something like her pleasure in it feels uncomfortable, even as like we agree in some ways with the judgment. And I think that's how I feel in general about Lady Russell. Um, like, and so Grace already knows this because I text her after listening to <laughs> the second um, podcast. And um, when you and your brother were talking, I was like, oh man, I'm so conflicted about this because I... I kind of think, so she gave her advice that they shouldn't get married for all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not, that part of the advice wasn't good, but I also think it was good advice. Mm. And that seems like a strange thing to say that she was like, don't get married. But okay, <laughs> I feel really strongly about this. So I'm pulling Yes, it. I want to hear. Please explain. Um, so if you go back to chapter four. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, very early on, this is the description of Captain Wentworth that we get before, like during the engagement period. And so I'm an older sister. Um, my sister is married. I'm picturing her introducing her fiance to me and using this descriptive language. So it's the paragraph that begins, Captain Wentworth had no fortune. Yes, I know exactly what section <laughs> you're talking about, but keep going. <laughs> Wentworth had no fortune. He had been lucky in his profession, but spending freely, what had come freely, had realized nothing. 
this is the part that really gets me, but he was confident that he should soon <laughs> be rich, full of life and ardor. He knew that he should soon have a ship and soon be on a station that would lead to everything he wanted. He had always been lucky. He knew he should be still. I'm just picturing my sister coming to me and like saying this about Jay, who is very lovely. And I think I'd be like, oh, oh, honey, he's confident that one day he'll be rich. (laughs) Okay, I will grant you that is an excellent point. Um, And yeah, there's a brashness of youth there. That is, I think you're right, that Lady Musgrove, um, yeah, her take on that isn't great. No. But she does it's almost like ah oh, how can i say this it's almost like she senses things but then misinterprets them yeah i, I was I trying to right. i think there's something to that like she often stumbles into the right ish judgment but it's for the wrong reasons and because it's for the wrong reasons it always causes problems yes like, i'm so i'm picturing again like projecting myself into the scenario i would have been like okay, that sounds great. If he's so confident, Melissa, Anne, like, then just have a long engagement. And like, you guys can get married once he's made his fortune. And like, you know, that would have been perfectly reasonable in Austin's time. And And, yes, very time appropriate. Like that would not, long engagements did happen. Um, You know, no one thought they were ideal, but they were a good option if you didn't have the resources at the time. Yeah. Although and, and Austin looks very unfavorably upon them elsewhere. <laughs> That's true. If you think of Sense and Sensibility with Edward yeah. Ferrer's engagement with Lucy Steele, that is secret for a long time, or Frank Churchill's engagement to Jane mm-hmm. Fairfax. Um, those are two of the like prominent examples of long-term engagements that are, uh, but those are both secret, which also changes it. That makes it more problematic. Yeah, that's a good point. Are there long engagements in Austin without it being a secret? I can't think of any off the top of my head. Huh. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe it would be okay. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, But yeah, I think there is something to this, like, like I like the way you put it, that she's just not, yeah, she's just not coming at this with, She's, she does almost stumble into it. Like yeah. it, it was very odd. And that makes and big- like questions of interpretation and interpreting one another are so major in persuasion that I think maybe that's why I struggle with Lady Russell as a character because I mm-hmm. think that Austin is maybe um, interested in her because this is a woman who does like on the surface look like she has like really good judgment, mm. but in fact, her judgment is proceeding from this misalignment of her values and, uh, and like the reality of things. I yeah. don't know. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, and you can't, I mean, it's not very prudent, right? Like she, yes. <laughs> in some ways, like the opposite of Anne, she looks really prudent. And people yes. are like, talk about it a lot in this chapter, like how she's so eager to give her counsel and so delighted that so many people want it. Yes. But in fact, because it's not, 
she's not a prudential person. She's actually not ideal for advice giving. Yes. Oh, that's really, yeah. I think that's a really good point because too, if you, (laughs) if you think about, um, there's that hilarious uh, section where Henrietta is really pleased in Lyme that um, that Anne has been very gracious and kind about Charles Hayter. And Henrietta like repays the compliment by saying like, oh, if only Lady Russell could come, she would arrange things accordingly right away. And that's like her compliment to Anne. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I think that also shows what you're saying, where it's like this yeah. reputation for judgment giving, for coming to conclusions, for making things happen. But then um, in actuality, uh, in people's hearts, it's not as easy as it looks. No, I love that. That's a great connection. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Oh, Henrietta. Henrietta <laughs> trying, <laughs> trying to make a nice connection. <laughs> um. Yeah. So, oh, let's talk about when Anne and Lady Russell visit uh, Kellynch Hall with the new occupants. Yeah. Oh, so good. I too will join your like fan club of especially Mrs. Croft, but the Crofts. Ah, such a delightful marriage. They're so great. I love them. They just, uh, they just are kind of different, I think. Yeah, they do feel really different. And this scene is like, is really hilarious. <laughs> like, it's a good thing Anne is, like, so socially adept. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's just so awkward. Um, yeah. And um, Admiral Croft tries so hard to not be awkward. About <laughs> the changes they've made to Kellynch Hall. But it's just inherently an awkward, like, conversation. There's no getting around the fact no. that, like, people don't really want to talk about where you now put umbrellas and where they used to put them. (laughs) The replacement of the laundry door. Hmm. Yes. Fascinating. Stimulating. No, but the best part of this section um, is the looking glasses. Ah, so good. (laughs) (laughs) I love what Admiral Croft says. Um, So if you don't remember... Um, unsurprisingly, Sir Walter Elliot is very fond of mirrors and he really likes looking at himself and he has a lot in his dressing room. And of course, now Admiral Croft is the man of the house and uses that dressing room. And, uh, he says, a very good man and very much the gentleman, I'm sure, but I should think Miss Elliot looking with serious reflection I should think that he must be rather a dressy man for his time of life. Such a number of looking glasses. Oh, Lord, there was no getting away from oneself. And then I love it that he asks his wife to help him move them. That was so cute. And so, like, not Austin-y feeling. Like, can you imagine in an adaptation, like, the lady of the house helping the man move mirrors, like, large mirrors out of the dressing room? I cannot. Um, what, what a sign of love. And it, I just, I do want to see this in an adaptation, what the room must have looked like. How many mirrors were there? Like, I was thinking that too. I was like, oh, okay. So there are two thoughts that occur to my mind here. One is, would Jane Austen be absolutely horrified at the amount of mirrors we have in modern day houses? Like, is that the equivalent of Sir Walter's amount of mirrors? Or was it like, 
like a ballet studio, like literal floor to ceiling, like with giant golden frames, you know, I don't know. Cause I don't know what like mirrors in the Regency period were like. Good question. And um, I have the vague sense but this is like based on like medieval stuff, like mirrors are expensive <laughs> to produce. I'm like, yes, they were a luxury object. Yeah. When did they stop being luxury? Objects? I don't know. I wish I knew. Cause I was thinking about that. Um, so by the way, if you are a mirror historian out there, <laughs> you'd like to share with us more about when mirrors became not luxury objects. I'm sure they still in this have some level of like right. expense they because mirrors it. are quite honestly still expensive today. Like if you go buy yeah. a nice mirror at a furniture store, in 2021 here and now you'd spend hundreds of dollars on it yeah so yeah now when glass is expensive even before you treat yeah I think it must have been so an absurd luxury item yeah Yeah. correct us if we're wrong though mirror experts out there in the world slash like cosplaying regency people who'd be really into that Um, kind of thing yeah important yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love that line too. There was no getting away from oneself. Like what a perfect line. I mean, this seems very sensible. Um, I'm like, yeah, that would be an uncomfortable, whatever amount. It sounds like a truly uncomfortable amount of mirrors. (laughs) Yes. I like it. Although I am kind of fascinated. Maybe he just had a normal amount because I do have like not a small number. I'm looking around my. I know us, us too. I mean, yeah, we have a significant amount of mirrors in our house. I wonder if Jane Austen would think us excessively dressy. <laughs> excessively dressy. Maybe. It's great. <laughs> oh, well. Mm. What can you do? Uh, so then we have, um, we've hit chapter two. That's the end of chapter one. Yay. And uh, uh, Mary and Charles come back into mm. town from Lyme and we have more discussion of Captain Benwick who yeah. is perhaps an admirer of Anne. I love in this novel that when you start it's like no one could ever admire Anne like the least attractive possible by the time we hit volume two she's got three admirers so many like second glances everyone's like ah Anne so foxy. <laughs> um, totally it's really so hot right now. I love it for her. <laughs> it's so great. Um, and I love this line that, uh, that Barry, <laughs> the line that you mentioned earlier, the agreeable uh, fortnight. Uh, yes. Um, which by the way, can we just use that phrase more often? Like yeah. talk about how we had an agreeable fortnight. I think so. We'll, we'll do that. Yeah. I, I think it's great. Um, she had, she had uh, got so many books from the library and changed them so often. Uh, she, um, Mrs. Harville had always given Mrs. Musgrove precedence in walking into a room, uh, which by the way, um, a little bit of background here for folks. Uh, so people were very much sticklers on the order in which you walked into dinner, even at like a regular person's house. If you were just over somewhere for dinner, people would walk into the dinner room the dining room that's what it's called um after dinner was announced and it would be in strict order of um who basically um 
had the most like aristocratic background or who was also based on marriage. So married people walked in before single people, um, older siblings walked in before younger siblings. It was all very like complicated and hierarchical. Um, but anyways, Mary's very happy because Mrs. Harville had it wrong at first because Mary's the daughter of a baronet. Um, and, but she received a very handsome apology on finding out whose daughter she was. So that made Lyme really great. The library, the walks, there were a great more many people to look at in church than at Uppercross. And it was all very agreeable. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, having more people to look at in church really feels like (laughs) a step up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh. It's a classic Mary moment, and I really enjoy it. It's really good. Yeah, and their conversation is really funny. Um, I mean, I do really like Charles and Mary's like bickering in general, but the fight over whether or not like Captain Benwick is super into Anne. <laughs> it's like kind of funny because Charles is like here for it. He's like, I'm not letting this go. He's into Anne. There's, we just need to make this clear. Yes, and he's so vague about it. Like, he's clearly, like, talking it up, but not really remembering what was said, um, which makes it even better. And Mary then is just constantly discounting it. (laughs) And what's funny is that basically Mary ends up saying something that I think Jane Austen agrees with, Mm -hmm. um, which is... Mary's getting upset that she herself is not the charm that Anne is. And she says, uh, refuting Charles. And I am sure, cried Mary warmly, it was very little to his credit if he did like Anne. Uh, Miss Harville only died last June. Such a heart is very little worth having. Is it, Lady Russell? I'm sure you must agree with me. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a lot of judgment and it only builds throughout the book of like people who let go of grief too soon. Yes. Uh, Yeah. So it is funny to hear Mary saying that here. Yes. It's, it's Mary stumbling into something that ends up being sort of a core theme of the book. Um, As we will see when we get to the final chapters, this question of grief and love and who loves longest is all integral to how Anne understands herself. Um, and so it's funny cause we have like <laughs> Anne, uh, junior Anne light. I don't know. It's some <laughs> weird version of Anne coming out of Mary right now. <laughs> yeah. That is funny. I mean, they are, they are related and it does feel like sometimes Austin gets really interested in like how even the like not so great sibling, <laughs> <laughs> reproduces like yes. okay habits from the other ones yes so, definitely yeah, not totally silly just mostly silly yes yes um kind of like I, I mean I think the prime example of this is the Bennett sisters yeah. in Pride and Prejudice where um the first time I read that book I felt kind of like irritated because I was like how can in one family can all these people like view things so differently and have such different perspectives and they don't seem like siblings at all. But the more you think about it, the more you're like, Oh, Lydia or Mary Bennett are just like pieces of Elizabeth Bennett's personality that haven't been like fully developed in different ways. And so I think, yeah, it's part of that here too. 
Yeah. Poor Mary. Maybe one day she'll develop. It's not looking Aww. good. <laughs> Bummer. Yeah. yeah. But I, I do love his evidence. It's really funny. Like, oh, he's always reading your recommendations, <laughs> um, which is just kind of amazing. Um, like that people fall in love with Anne over her like reading suggestions. So dreamy. Yes. <laughs> love that. But then Mary also turns that into a fault. Mm-hmm. Um, he will sit pouring over his book and not know when a person speaks to him or when one drops one scissors, which is very specific. It makes you think that that happened. It may have occurred. Uh, do yes. you think Lady Russell would like that? And again, we have all this like opinion seeking for Lady Russell, which is what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I mean, maybe Lady Russell has a lot of opinions about how people should respond when she drops her scissors. <laughs> Uh, Do you think that um, that like when ladies dropped things, were they not supposed to pick them up themselves? Oh, yeah. I think they're kind of not supposed to, but I'm like basing that on like slim evidence taken mostly from like romance novels. I know, right? That's what same here. I'm like, I wonder how like hard and fast of a rule that was, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that definitely sounds like the kind of funny. The ridiculous like protocol that yeah. the Regency began and the Victorians perfected into an art. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea. Oh, huh. maybe he is um, ungallant by not picking up the. <laughs> huh. Well, and now we're on to Bath. Yes, Bath. Lady Very Russell and, and Anne say goodbye to Upper Cross, the loud Christmas revels. And I love the Musgroves. I just think they're so cute and charming. They're very fun. Nothing was so likely to do her good as a little quiet cheerfulness at home. And Lady Russell is just like, oh my gosh, like this is insane. (laughs) (laughs) We find hilarious. Um, Almost as hilarious as like Anne's like dislike of path. Um, So not feeling it. Yes. They are not. uh, Yeah, poor Anne. Not ready to leave. This does sound really bad. I remember reading this the first time um, and going, oh my gosh. Uh, she persisted in a very determined, though very silent disinclination for Bath, caught the first dim view of the extensive buildings smoking in rain without any wish of seeing them better, felt their progress through the streets to be, however disagreeable, yet too rapid for who would be glad to see her when she arrived. Oh, which is devastating. That is brutal. Yeah. Brutal. So not only do we have this absolutely dreary portrait of Bath, which you could just picture, I just picture it in this sort of like watercolor gray palette, Mm -hmm. the smoking buildings just going on for blocks. And then that absolute lack of any sort of interpersonal connection. Yeah. I mean, it just feels so sad because we have seen like Anne come alive so much and then it's hard not to worry. Like, are you going to be back in a corner um, being talked over again. Yes. And here's where we should see like somebody like Lady Russell's angry contempt 
um, yeah. where you go, this is so gross that she's yeah. headed back to this. And, um, that, uh, there's, there's nothing awaiting her there, but yet there she goes. Yeah. Uh, poor Anne. Um, but it's a funny transition. What do you think of her like reception in Bath? Like, yeah. It's like, oh yeah. Should we go back to the pin of like, we're moving from the chaos of the Musgroves, the medical chaos. And then also you can add on to that, the Christmas chaos of the last scene. And then we hit Bath um, and this like ornamental, cold, uh, I mean, Elizabeth Elliot is just the definition of this like cold uh, person. Yeah. And it feels like really, it, it's so weird. Cause like, and okay, I, I get like, to a certain extent, I don't actually get it, but like, I can see Anne probably doesn't have a ton to report on the day to day. They see her a lot, but now she's got like real news to share. She's like, Hey, there was an important medical injury. Like (laughs) someone fell off the cob. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And they're just not interested. No, they don't ask follow-up questions. They're just kind of like, and it's not until Mr. Elliot comes on the scene that somebody's like, I'm sorry, like what happened in line? <laughs> yeah, it's just like really weird. It is so weird. And, and I think Austin does this super interesting thing with the introduction of Bath where um, we have multiple paragraphs that are just about the furniture and like the setup of the rooms. And that is so intentional because it's reinforcing that strange inert coldness and lack of interest. Like, I mean, Sir Walter and Elizabeth might as well be furniture themselves. (laughs) Like, yeah. Well, and not even in this case, like particularly good furniture or that's, you know, but she's had that kind of funny moment where Anne gets like, um, kind of quietly judgmental right where like elizabeth's like bragging about their place and yes. showing them off and she's like oh, what did she it's really devastating she's like ah oh, to think elizabeth like used to like show people around kellynch but now she's talking about the distance of like 30 feet or something yes um, yeah no that's where she has she must sigh that her father should feel no degradation in his change, should see nothing to regret in the duties and dignity of the resident landholder, should find so much to be vain of in the littlenesses of a town. And she must sigh and smile and wonder too as Elizabeth threw open the folding doors and walked with exultation from one drawing room to the other, boasting of their space. At the possibility of that woman who had been mistress of Kellynch Hall finding extant to be proud of between two walls, perhaps 30 feet asunder. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty, it's a cold space. It's an empty space and it's a much reduced one that they like completely unable to read accurately. I guess. And it's so reflective of, of the owners. I mean, I Mm. think like, so I think back, we didn't talk about this, but when she visited the cross, um let's see oh yes when she Uh, visited the crofts um she uh 
she has such a high opinion of them. And this is in chapter uh, two. No, this is in chapter one of this, of this section. And she's, she had in fact so high an opinion of the cross and considered her father so very fortunate in his tenants felt the parish to be so sure of a good example and the poor of the best attention and relief that however sorry and ashamed for the necessity of the removal, she could not but in conscience feel that they were gone who deserved not to stay and that Kellynch Hall had passed into better hands than its owners. Um, and so this painful conviction, and then we compare that to these scenes of them in the littlenesses of town um, where we see that Austin is aligning the characters, the broad expansive characters of the Crofts and the broad expansive character of the country. And then we have the stale, uh, dim smoking buildings of Bath and the stale, dim smoking minds of Sir Walter and Elizabeth. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And it, it, that is really devastating. <laughs> so devastating and fascinating too, because here we see some of Austin's um, uh, changing feelings about the aristocracy and like what, who belongs where, what we should do with class, because the Crofts clearly are not baronets. They are not the baronet's blood, as 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 Sir Walter would say. Yeah. Um but they belong. Austin's not a revolutionary. She's not trying to like tear down. Like she believes some people belong in manor houses and she's trying to sketch out who does belong there and who doesn't. And so this is, I think a moment where she's really grappling with class and not necessarily in the way that we would, we would um, grapple with it today, but in her own way. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And in some ways it reminds me of, I, I think you're right. It like feels really alien, but it feels like a, um, depending in, if you're coming from it, from the middle ages, it feels really familiar. If you're looking back though, it reminds me of this sort of like distinction between like talking about class and someone being classy. It yes. feels like an ancestor of this sort of. Yes. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. And you're right. It is like a very, um, like Jane Austen is thinking about the the rights and responsibilities of a really good landlord, which was a perennial topic of conversation for medieval folks. Um, not that there were that many good landlords, but they did worry about it to their credit. Yeah, some of them. Which is something. <laughs> yeah. Sir Walter never caring about. Oh, me. no, no. And so here we see sort of a changing England that, that Austen is living in. Yeah. Um, and okay, the aristocracy, the ancient rights of the blood, all that stuff. This is not working. No, there's a real sort of like social failure. She doesn't get into it. I think you're right. Like, but she does, she acknowledges it and is like, hmm. And then she, I, I think she's really uncomfortable with it. Like, <laughs> that's probably right. Like, I mean, she's, she definitely believes in the moral obligations of wealth, like 100%. Yeah. Um, but she doesn't, she doesn't know what to do with it. And so this is an attempt to experiment, I think, that we don't see elsewhere in her novels, but. Yeah. And we won't, we don't get to it here, but I do think she like pushes at some of that a little mm-hmm. bit later with the introduction of like a friend of Anne's. Yes. So, like we can see glimmers of her, like clearly thinking about it, but you're right. I mean, she had options. Like there were people in this time, like, writing about class struggle. I mean, yes. she's like writing a generation like 
at, well, within the generation or just removed from like Wollstonecraft's vindication. Yes. You know, like, yes, so that that's exactly what I was going to bring up is that yeah. we have other women out there like Wollstonecraft, who I do think is basically her contemporary, right? I mean, wasn't that published in like 1796 or something like that? It's something I can't remember if it's the 1780s or 1790s, but yeah. you're right. Yes. Like still while she's alive, it's getting a lot yes. of, there's all the writing about the French revolution, the Haitian revolution, you know, so she makes yes. it, she chooses what not to dive into. Yeah. It's interesting. And by the way, this is only just now occurring to me, but we're about to talk about Mr. Elliot. And yeah. this is where I think some of that comes out in her judgment of Mr. Elliot and, and oh, how he yeah, makes yeah. his decisions later. I think um, that's right. Yeah. I, that didn't occur to me before, but he's that's where some of the real flaws in his character really emerge. Yeah, all of the really interesting sort of flip-flopping of his, like, decisions about how he feels towards yes. Elliot. Um, yes. Which we see, like, the first glimmers of here, where he, like, comes in with his big apology and is like... <laughs> He's, oh. like, blithely lying to them. <laughs> yeah, and he's, like, the the worst lies ever. Like, <laughs> but they're so stupid, too. They're really bad. Um, Let's see delicacy had kept him silent. You thought I threw you off. I thought you threw me off and I just didn't want to bring it up because I was so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, really bad. But then he fixes it. So it's fine. You know, like you have to be looking for that, but like he does start to do that kind of like he'd so categorically thrown off all the trappings of class. And here he's like, uh, to give him credit, he knows exactly what Sir Walter wants to hear most. Yes. And so he he does it. Oh, it's brilliant. Like when you look at what he's doing to ingratiate himself, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, a very fine woman with a large fortune in love with him. And of course, that's exactly what Sir Walter wants. Like that's exactly what he likes to hear. He's like, oh, of course, that makes perfect sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I love that Elizabeth, like forgives him but she's also not really forgiving him <laughs> which makes sense she's like sir walter may be like okay yeah but she's the one who was like immediately affected yes um, totally in like a very particular way so she's not having it as much um i just want to read this line out loud about yeah. the um because we were just mentioning like sort of medieval ideals of of landowning and stuff and that you can hear mr elliot in this, like, it's not a direct quote from him, but we can hear him coming through as uh, in his explanation. Um, Upon the hint of having spoken disrespectfully or carelessly of the family and the family honors, he was quite indignant. <laughs> he who had ever boasted of being an Elliot and whose feelings as to connection were only too strict to suit the unfeudal tone of the present day. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, it is funny because it does, it, he certainly sounded like a real, I don't know if we want to say revolutionary earlier, but no, now he speaks in a way that would be out of step with the unfeudal tone. He's positively story. feudal, he assures yeah. them. <laughs> uh, what a thing to take on. I know. <laughs> I missed that before, but wow, that is, um, funny. I could just picture him just piling it on Sir Walter okay. and um, Elizabeth. Very well received. Yeah. And this is interesting too, this line about Anne. 
Um, and she's hearing all this explanation mm-hmm. of Mr. Elliot. And it says, and listened, but yeah. without quite understanding it. Which is so crazy because Anne is the queen of understanding. And that's one of the reasons. So Grace and I were talking like in the lead up to it. Um, Mr. Elliot is just such a fascinating character because he feels like kind of in line with some other Jane Austen characters where like Jane Austen herself, or at least like from a reader's perspective, they seem very appealing. Like Mr. Elliot, um, Frank Churchill, the Crawfords from Mansfield Park. Uh, They're just like, they're bright, they're clever, and they're kind of attractive. You know, there's something a little bit off about them, but you're like, ah, but still, I don't know. So I wonder if like maybe Anne's like being, I don't know. She seems like a little taken in by these, like the things she's hearing too. Yes. She knows she's hearing embellishment. She's not knowing where it comes from. I think that's what's really interesting is that with Mr. Elliot, you don't know where it's coming from. Is it coming from him? Or is he so able to like parrot what's going on around him, ingratiate himself to every personality there that you can't tell if he's saying something from somebody else or saying what he actually believes. And that ends up being what Anne can't ever quite trust about him. Yeah, which is probably valid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, um, by the way, everybody, uh, so there's two, count them, two new persuasion adaptations coming out, which is so funny and strange because of all the movies, uh, of all the books, I mean, this one seems maybe other than Mansfield Park, perhaps the least like cinematic. Yeah. Um, or the most difficult to translate into film. There's so many uh, memory-oriented moments, mm-hmm. uh, really subtle conversational stuff that that feels like it'd be really hard. But you know who they cast as Mr. Elliot is Henry Golding, who is like this drop-dead gorgeous British actor. And I'm shocked it, it is shocking. Like, if you guys haven't seen him, he was the lead in um, Crazy Rich Asians. He does look like a Disney prince. He literally <laughs> is a Disney prince. I mean, he he was a male model before he started acting, and he's he was, and he's definitely a male model. I mean, yeah, you look at him and you're like, yes, yes, you you model, of course. So it's really odd to me, and it makes me very nervous, actually, for the adaptation, that they would cast somebody like Henry Golding to play Mr. Elliot. I'm like, oh, what are you going for here? I don't know. I mean, especially, like, thinking about what you were discussing in the last podcast about, like, the weird sort of, like, what category of, like, visual appeal is he supposed to have? Yes. Like, this, this is clearly not what it's supposed to be. No, um, he's not a male model. I mean, I think Wentworth is supposed to be handsomer than yeah. Elliot, or at least I always understood it that way. No, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, it's a very weird choice. Um, yeah, but this is also the same adaptation that cast Dakota Johnson to play Anne Elliot, who I would never described as describe as like washed out before her prime. No, 
It's a weird choice. Although I will say I am like really interested in, it doesn't say on the IMDb page, but they've um, put in uh, Richard Grant is the, um, he's, he's somewhere in it. I think he must be Mr. Elliot, like Walter Wait, Elliot. Remind me who Richard Grant is. Um, is he the Game of Thrones guy? He is in Game of Thrones. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he's like a really good character actor. So I'm like, yeah. Interesting. That is um, interesting. Okay, so, that, that cast is not as bad. I mean, it's, I, there's still some really questionable <laughs> stuff. So I don't want to like, yeah. But, but it's weird because I, yeah, I think he is supposed to be like, in some ways, a really compelling and magnetic presence, but he's not necessarily in and of himself supposed to be like devastating. Yes, not, certainly not Henry Golding level. Like, yeah. Yes, I do think the point about magnetism is important. Like he takes people in. He is warm. He's friendly. Um and this leads me to perhaps a final there's so much we could talk about, but unfortunately we're beginning to run out of time. Um yeah. but that when Elliot shows up, when Mr. Elliot shows up himself, there's this fascinating moment. Um where uh, his manners are incredible. He has impeccable manners. And Anne, in fact, goes so far as to compare them to Wentworth's manners, she, which she only prefers Wentworth so slightly over, over his, which is a huge compliment. And yeah. then he improves their conversation just by his presence. Um, there could be no doubt of his being a sensible man. Ten minutes were enough to certify that. His tone, his expressions, his choice of subject, his knowing where to stop. It was all the operation of a sensible, discerning mind. Um, and, and then it goes from that into what exactly what you had pointed out, Jessica, that he asks her about Lyme. He actually displays curiosity and interest in the admittedly super interesting events of Lyme that nobody else has um, displayed interest in. But what do you make of that, that scene? Because I think that is, Austin places such a high value on conversation and on attentiveness to other people. Yeah, which is kind of amazing. The fact, I think that's what's so interesting about Mr. Elliot, because like, I maybe it's like, we're all too primed from having read or seen too many romance novels, but it <laughs> seems like as soon as like Mr. Elliot comes on, you're like, oh, this is like the sleazeball that you're going to think maybe is okay, but it's not okay. So you know, like... Uh, sorry, spoiler for anyone who like <laughs> didn't know, but Mr. Elliot proves to be right, like not a hundred percent reliable. He um, doesn't have. Yes, he is. He has some some not so good characteristics that you will discover in the next few chapters. Yeah, but this is like pretty. This is real praise. Real like, praise, and it's not. You know how um, so often when Austin praises a character that you don't like she does it in a tongue-in-cheek way where you can tell that it's praise but it's not real praise um it's she's making fun of them but praising them but really actually it's not a compliment this is a real compliment no he improved the conversation i mean that's just a direct fact yes yeah, yeah. there could be no doubt of his being a sensible. She, she repeats sensible twice. And sensible is such a big word to her. Uh, I mean, I, Jane Austen has great taste. Sensible people, the sexiest people. They're the best. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. like, 
Do you think that maybe this goes back to some of the um, like prudent stuff that we were talking about earlier? I think that's really interesting. Yeah, there is something like, um, there is something really um, prudent, right? About Mr. Elliot. Like he doesn't necessarily use it for like positive ends, but he uses it like in conversation, I think, mm-hmm. right? Here, right? Mm-hmm. Really know and connect to other people. Yes. Um, and his prudence. Well, dang it. I, I know. Can't really say exactly. it without ruining. Um, <laughs> note though, that this prudence, even we can see that it is a prudent act for him to become reconciled with this branch of the family. And I won't say more on that right now, but that is a prudent act in more ways than one. Um, yeah. But again, we have the question of what, where's this judgment coming from? What kinds of discernment is he using to get to this, through this process? And, and sorry, I think Austin is just so interested throughout this whole book in this question of, um, the, the aim behind the decisions being made. Yeah. And his aims aren't, always good but but even here like that doesn't mean uh, yeah it doesn't mean necessarily that he doesn't have still that same virtue that same skill yes yes. and this is one that she really values yes Uh, yeah put like a really important like it matters to Anne it improves her quality of life she likes that after this conversation yes which who would have thought I mean that's a huge shift yeah yeah I mean, I, I really liked, um, so in the lead up to talking about the podcast, um, Grace used the language of like, um, talking about this as an ethics of, com- like that there is something really ethical um, here yes. about like being a good conversationalist. And I think that's yes. fascinating because we don't often think of like being a co- good conversationalist as an ethical imperative, but that seems very much to be the case here. Like, yes, I, I think so. And I think that's where we see, um, sort of the vapid nature of, um, of Sir Walter and Elizabeth, um, especially in their, in their ethics and in their morality is that it pours out of them in their absolute lack of engagement in conversation with anybody or anything other than on the topics that are pre-approved by them. Um, Oh, sorry, Grace. No, and that Mr. Elliot is willing to engage there. That shows that there is some kind of um, interesting ethical problem going on with conversation where it's not the only proof of an ethical person, but it's a huge, it it, it is an ethical act conversation is. And um, yeah, I'd like to think about that more, but I think there's big stuff going on there. I think that's interesting. And it ties into, I know you've been talking a lot about attention in this novel and like conversation as a form of attention. Yes. Um, That, that seems really clear here. Like he is the only one in the conversation paying attention. Yes. Um, And as, someone, I know Grace, you've had this experience, someone who's been in academia where there are so many bad conversations. Oh my gosh, you guys, you would not believe the pain, (laughs) the utter pain of attending conferences and being in a room of academics 
God bless them. And just like suffering through conversation. Yeah. And there is something, it, it is like surreal suffering. And there is something like really, um, I don't think I would have used the language of unethical, but there is something about the way people who aren't attentive in conversation, it, it does feel a little unethical, actually. Yes. Like, you're not attending to that person. And yes. like, you can't be attentive all the time. Right. Um, but it, it has devastating effects. I mean, right. and Elliot. Yes. And, and I think like the academia example is a good one because that's in, that's a, a place <laughs> probably a little bit more like Jane Austen's society mm-hmm. where you look around the room and you know who the big shots are and you know who like the graduate students are that no one cares about. And there's this very clear hierarchy and structure of power mm-hmm. and people are wearing name tags with their institutions on them. And everybody is paying attention and working hard at conversation with you based on your standing within that very hierarchical, very limited society. Mm-hmm. And Anne, who is not the oldest daughter, who is not beautiful, who doesn't have these marks of worthy of being paid attention to on the outside of her, that Mr. Elliot is paying attention to her now, is actually a mark of something ethical going on there. Yeah, he's been paying enough attention and he was the second, no, I guess he was the third. Do we meet him before Captain Benwick? They're like almost simultaneous, I um, feel like. But he's like, he noticed Anne, like, just at the start of her, yes. like, and again. Wentworth noticing him, noticing Anne, yeah. that is where, the, like, so much of the real kind of stuff bubbling under the surface comes from is Wentworth going, oh, she still got it. Like, <laughs> I was... Yeah. I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, his capacity to be attentive makes a huge difference for Anne. Yeah. And maybe, well, I'm not going to go there. Zip. I'm going to wait. Yeah, it's, hard, <laughs> it's like, yes, it will continue to be the case. Yes. There's a lot going on there. Don't worry. We're going to get to it. <laughs> it's coming. Just read with it in mind and let me know what you think. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Jessica, thank you so, so much for joining me. I had so much fun with our little medieval touchstones and talking virtues with you. I love that. And um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks. It was a real delight. And don't forget, um, listeners or watchers, Um, to please subscribe to either the podcast or the YouTube channel. And um, also, I always love hearing from you. I would love to hear any questions you have, anything you want addressed, um, or any casting you have for any (laughs) persuasion features that you would be directing. I would love to hear it all. So um, you can uh, follow me on Instagram, oldbookswithgrace with underscores between the words, or you can um, comment on the YouTube video and I look forward to hearing from you. So thanks for listening and until next time. Bye.